Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Abide in Liberty. Last week, I talked about the movie The Sound of Freedom and ended with a call to action for myself and for all of you who listen to this podcast that we have to do something, anything, to fight the evil of child trafficking and all human trafficking for that matter. We learn about slavery that existed in the past, especially in this country, and we despise it. And we often congratulate ourselves that we manage to eradicate that evil in this country. And while that is good, and I don't want to downplay that at all, we've allowed our self-congratulations to lull us into a sense of blindness to the slavery that is alive and well today, and that our country is the top consumer in the world of. So if you if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's podcast, I highly recommend going back because this week is going to be a sister topic to that and will make hopefully a whole lot more sense if you've listened to it first. One of the things that I said last week was that I believe that our discipleship and one of the ways that God will judge our faithfulness will depend on the role that we took in fighting the two greatest evils in our day, and that is the evil of both the enslavement and the destruction of our children. Last week, we talked about the enslavement of children, and this week, I'm going to be talking about the destruction of our children, and in particular, abortion. The Holocaust, perpetuated by Adolf Hitler before and during World War II, resulted in the death of an estimated 13 million people. And about half of those, roughly six or seven million, were Jewish. And the rest were political enemies, those who aided and abetted the Jews, or those who uh, were citizens of conquered countries that didn't welcome Adolf Hitler with open arms. The Holocaust is ugly. It's hard to look at. It's hard to read about. And it is hard to learn about. It just tugs at the heartstrings like few other things can, yet we do look at it. We do require our children to learn about it because we don't want, we desperately do not want to repeat that evil. In contrast, there are an estimated 73 million abortions that occur each year worldwide. And that coming from a couple of different websites that are very obviously pro-abortion and, and that are using these statistics to try and convince people to make safe abortion available to many more because many, a high percentage of those abortions are what are considered unsafe. Another website I found uh, had a tracker that showed that we were at about 23, 24 million abortions so far in 2023. So regardless of which of these numbers we use, there's somewhere between 50 and 73 million unborn babies killed every single year. That is four to six times as many lives as were taken during the Holocaust every single year. Now you might be wondering, like I did when I read that statistic, what percentage of that number can we explain with cases of rape? 
And from what I could find, there was a recent United Nations survey done of 63 of the biggest countries, and they estimated that there are about 250,000 rapes that occur each year. Now, let's assume that that is underreported by a factor of 10 and that there are in reality about two and a half million rapes per year. And if we assume that every single one of those resulted in a child or in a pregnancy, and every single one of those were aborted, that still is just a minuscule fraction of the total number of abortions that occur worldwide every single year. That means that there is a disgusting number of abortions that result from people who are trying to avoid the consequences of their own actions. Now, there are lots of opinions on this. My personal opinion is that there should be no abortion except in the case of rape, incest, or where the life of the mother is at risk, and even in those situations. Such a decision should be approached very carefully and with a whole lot of prayer and fasting. In most cases, though, the adults, the grown-ups in this picture, the supposedly mature people, made a choice to engage in an act that has as its primary purpose the perpetuation of the species. And if that decision results in a pregnancy, in no case should the child be killed in order to help the adults escape the consequences of their choices. To do so is evil. And we have allowed this to go on long enough. Now, another counter-argument might be, well, what about those who can't afford another child? Now, in the first case, can they really not afford it or can they not afford it without adjusting their lifestyle? Now, I understand that in many third world countries, the response to that might be and probably is that they genuinely can't afford it. In which case, we all should be following God's law of chastity and choosing abstinence, choosing to not engage in the act that might result in a life. I know that can be uncomfortable. I know that might not be a whole lot of fun, but that discomfort is worth not murdering children. You know, we we look at World War II and we look at the people, the normal people who lived in Germany during the Holocaust, and we wonder how in the world, especially in these towns that were close to these death camps, how could they smell the stench coming from that place? How could they watch these cattle cars jam-packed full of human beings who stank to high heaven, who were starving, emaciated. How could they watch all of this happen right down the street, right in their own backyards, and not do or say anything about it? You know, we don't want to look at the Holocaust because it's so bad, yet we can't be bothered to do anything about the out-in-the-open celebrated Holocaust of our unborn children. We mourn and we honor those killed in the Holocaust, but there are many more killed in the ongoing Holocaust of the unborn. You know, there are a couple of books that have been credited with moving the people of the world to abhorring and trying to do anything possible to prevent the Holocaust from happening again. One of those is The Diary of Anne Frank, and another is my one of my personal favorite books, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. And these are so powerful because these are people who lived it, who saw the horrors and who some of them, not all of them, lived to tell the tale about it. And because we hear their stories, we, we find ourselves able 
able to put ourselves in their shoes and we empathize with them. And, and we, we imagine what if that had been our mother or our grandmother, our sister, or even ourselves. But because the unborn can't express themselves in that way, they can't share with us their pain. They don't have a voice. So we can't hear or see their weeping. And so we ignore it. We don't pay attention. And Frank, in particular, this diary of this young teenage girl is so heart-wrenching because we get to see the potential of her great mind. She was incredibly eloquent, deep thinking. She was talented in so many ways. And to learn that just a short time after her final diary entry, she was killed in a concentration camp. We were enraged that these evil people robbed her and robbed the world of her insights and, and her potential. That's a, that's a hole in history that can't be filled in any other way. But we somehow fail to see the lost potential that each aborted child represents. But that potential is no less real. Those holes are no less gaping. The people of Germany saw these things going on around them as train cars passed their homes. But we don't see it because the bodies of the victims are disposed in medical waste bags along with the needles and the tongue depressors. We don't hear their screams or see their mangled bodies, so we simply allow it to continue. Over something of this magnitude, there should be protests in the street. Not violent ones, peaceful protests, but there should be protests nonetheless. But we simply can't be bothered. We can no longer allow our hobbies, our comfort, and our relaxation time to keep us from saving the lives of tens of millions of murdered children every single year, any more than we can ignore the problem of childhood slavery in our day. You know, I was talking with my mom, actually, about um, what I had talked about in my last episode of the podcast and talking about abortion, and she posed the question, how in the world has God not rained down his justice upon this nation, just like Thomas Jefferson feared? We are filling the cup of our destruction. And when it finally overflows, what side are we going to be on? Are we going to be on the side that stood on the sidelines and let it happen uncontested? Or at least not contested by us? Or are we going to find ourselves on the side that could have used our voices and could have used our support? But our obsession with watching grown men put a ball through a hoop stopped us from getting off our butts and doing something. Will the destroying angel pass us by personally because we didn't actively participate in it ourselves? On the flip side, we didn't do anything to stop it. Or will we be found on the side that fights and resists evil with everything we have? Now, we may never, on our own, eradicate this evil completely, but fighting it and saving even one precious soul is winning. And that's how we ensure that we're on God's right hand when he does finally pour that overflowing cup of destruction out on the world, like he's promised he will before Christ returns. Now, as a first step in arming all of ourselves with the... uh 
with what we need in order to be persuasive and have intelligent conversations with people, I want to spend a moment and address the issue of the overturning of Roe versus Wade last summer. So first, before getting into that, um, let's get a little bit of constitutional background. So when the Constitution was written, the colonists were incredibly suspicious of large and strong central national governments. They had just gotten rid of a king, and they wanted to give a federal government just enough power to keep the state safe and operating well. And so what they did was in the Constitution, they listed a very short list of things that the federal government could be in charge of, like collecting taxes, paying federal debts, regulating commerce with foreign nations, establishing laws for becoming a citizen, coining money, setting up post offices, setting up copyright and patent laws, punishing piracies, declaring war, and a few others. And the exec- that was just the legislative branch. And the executive branch had very few things it could do on its own, but its primary purpose was to simply enforce the laws that Congress passed. Now, interestingly, the power to decide what is right and wrong in abortion was not listed among the powers granted to the federal government. Now, the Constitution didn't end there. Many of the states wanted there to be a Bill of Rights amended and added to the Constitution, and they passed and ratified the Constitution with the promise that the first Congress would pass a Bill of Rights. Now, imagine that, getting a pinky swear from your congressman and actually being able to trust that they'll follow through. And follow through, they did. They passed a Bill of Rights where they outlined certain things that the federal government couldn't touch. Among those was that Congress could not set up a government-sponsored religion, that people had the right to free speech and freedom of the press and the right to assemble peacefully, the right to bear arms, to protect themselves and their property. Government couldn't house soldiers in your house without your permission. There would no longer be cruel and unusual punishments. But again, the right to an abortion was not listed in the Bill of Rights. And in fact, number 10 was different from all the others. It said that any power that had not been granted to the federal government was reserved to the states or to the people. Now, the Bill of Rights also never claimed to be an exhaustive list of all rights, but it did claim to prohibit and prevent the federal government from touching certain things, and in every other case, left those decisions to the states. And with regards to abortion, that's exactly how it was handled from the birth of our country until 1973, when the Supreme Court case Roe versus Wade was decided. And we're going to come back to that here in a second. But to understand what Roe versus Wade did, we have to review the 14th Amendment. So the Bill of Rights was the first 10 amendments. There were a couple in between. And then we hit the 14th Amendment just after the Civil War. So after the Civil War ended in 1865, Amendment 13 was passed to abolish slavery in the states. Huge victory and a fantastic thing for this country. But some states continued to deny rights to former slaves. For example, they refused to give them due process of law and and fairness before the justice system and before the state and national courts. So Amendment 14 was passed, and it says in response to that trend that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So in other words, you can't deny anybody, not even former slaves, constitutionally protected rights or treat people differently under the law. They deserve due process and they deserve the right to go through the same fair legal process as everyone else. Now, we would struggle to live up to that and completely embrace that amendment for another hundred years until the civil rights movement of the 1960s and beyond. But in Roe versus Wade, over a hundred years after the 14th Amendment was originally passed, Roe versus Wade made the argument that this due process protection equated to a protection of privacy and therefore provided a protection of the right to an abortion for everyone in America. So in this case, through that kind of logical chain or logical air quotes, right? That logical chain said that abortion was a constitutionally protected right. And here's what it said in Roe versus Wade. State criminal abortion laws like those involved here violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects against state action the right to privacy, including a woman's qualified right to terminate her pregnancy. Now, I just read that due process clause to you, and it doesn't say anything about abortion. And here we need to highlight once again how important intent is when a law is passed. When, when the people, the 75% of the states who ratified that 14th Amendment, when they ratified that amendment to make sure that former slaves were given due process and fair representation under the law, did they have in their minds that they were also granting an explicit right for people to kill their unborn children? And the answer is no. That was not the intent. It was not even discussed in any of these ratification conventions for that amendment. It wasn't a thing. Not only that, Roe versus Wade didn't end there, but it went on to create guidelines for what you could do during and after the first trimester and so on. Again, none of this was covered in the in the Constitution or in any of the subsequent amendments. It actually still hasn't been included today in any amendments that we've passed. So the courts, out of thin air, invented these rules and these protections. And other cases afterwards leaned on that precedent and leaned on that decision to confirm abortion as a protected right in the United States Constitution. Now, some of you might be thinking, there is no way that these Supreme Court justices would make such an incredibly obvious mistake or downright dishonest move. But I want you to ask yourself, if a Supreme Court justice is trying to push an evil and legitimize an evil such as abortion, do you really think dishonesty is beneath them? You might also say, but the Constitution has to be flexible and adaptable to modern society and new changes, things that the founders couldn't have anticipated. And yes, you'd be right. And that's why they created the amendment process, where with 75% of the states in agreement, you can change anything in the Constitution to adapt to any situation. But never should a change to the guiding law, the ruling supreme law of this country, be dictated by reinterpreting a 100-year-old amendment by seven unelected judges in a way that those who passed that amendment in the first place wouldn't even recognize. Now, you might ask, what about precedent? 
Roe versus Wade created a precedent. It has been relied on since then. And yes, precedent is important in a legal system. Lower courts must rely on precedent of decisions of higher courts. This keeps things predictable and stable. And the Supreme Court does consider precedent and leans on it heavily. But precedent is not a straitjacket. That word isn't even in the Constitution. The Supreme Court's job is to ensure laws are constitutional, period. And I might add, ensure that laws are constitutional in accordance with their intent when they were originally passed. But if a prior case, a prior precedent, blatantly violates the Constitution, which Roe versus Wade obviously does, then the court is honor-bound to correct it, which they did, thank goodness, on Friday, June 24th, 2022, in the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization case. So to summarize this whole Roe versus Wade conversation, abortion isn't a federal power and is not protected in the Bill of Rights. And for 190 years, how to handle abortion was left up to the states. And through a disgusting overreach of constitutional power, in the case of Roe versus Wade, those Supreme Court justices completely altered the meaning and intent of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to suit their own fancy. And whether or not you agree that abortion should be decided by the states or should be decided at a national level, and there's a good argument to be made that in this country, in God's country, abortion should be controlled for everybody, that there shouldn't be these states where you can kill a child up to up until childbirth where others are protected. But whether or not you agree which one it should be decided by, the states or the federal government, and for what reasons, in the Dobbs versus Jackson case, the Supreme Court ruled in accordance with the constitutional law of this land and returned the issue of abortion back to the states. Now, those who don't like that, for one reason or the other, whether you're, you don't like it because you are against abortion or you don't like it because you're for abortion, the way to change that is through a constitutional amendment that does explicitly provide and address the issue of abortion at a national level. Those who don't like it should not resort to using intimidation tactics, threats of violence, or judicial reinterpretation to get their way. Now, I want to end this podcast, this episode, with a, the same call to action that I left you with last week. Please begin today to pray like you haven't prayed for a long time to find out what God wants you to do to make a difference in the problem of abortion, no matter how small that difference is then please sacrifice whatever comfort you have to to make it happen because our discomfort from our sacrifices is nothing compared to the hell that is being played out every day on the unborn, on the defenseless, on the voiceless, and on the silent victims of our nations and our world's children. We need to be the voice that they've never been given the opportunity to have. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.